is nothing wrong with your audio device. Do not attempt to adjust the playback. We are controlling this podcast. We can change the mix into a muddy bass. Or sharpen it into piercing treble. For the next hour, or likely, actually a lot more than an hour, we have a real problem with time management. Sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. Well, at least all that you hear. This is an audio format and you're very likely driving right now. You are about to participate in a Legal Issues podcast. Well, by participate in, I really just mean passively listen to, but you are about to partake in the moderate informativeness and mild entertainment that is the Lex Rex Institute podcast. So that's that's a different intro. Uh, You didn't like the last one that we used too much, so... No, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure this is a lot better, but considering oh. you had... Well, it's quite well, a bit no, no, different. No, no. Yeah, it is, and um, I appreciate the work you did editing that. Yeah, that, that's that's what I spent well, way too much of my afternoon doing. Hopefully none of my clients are listening to this because that's time that I didn't spend on their case. Well, <laughs> I'm also, you know, I think the fundamental issue of getting the reference maybe worse even this time than the the previous intro but that's all right i guess you don't you don't well, necessarily need to get the reference I, yeah i think it makes sense even if you don't get the reference sort of but the point is we're controlling this podcast which is sort of true in a way i mean yeah we're not controlling their like phone or computer or whatever it is that they're listening or on. are we or are we we're not. It would be illegal to do that. We're not doing that. Anyway, welcome to the Lex Rex Institute podcast. I'm your host, Alexander Haberbush, and I'm president of the Lex Rex Institute and also a constitutional attorney, although I won't be speaking in that capacity today. I guess that makes me the co-host this time. It's a change of pace. <laughs> but I'm the lead Don't worry, you'll have the Lex same Rex. duties. <laughs> I'm the lead writer for the Lex Rex Institute, David Truchel. Uh, before we oh, begin... Oh, shoot. Now I don't know... Oh, right. Yeah, we got to do before we begin. <laughs> please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and all of the opinions That's expressed right. are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. Yeah, that's you all normally of that's have true. a bit. You normally Another have a thing, bit that goes here. Another thing that's fine. true is that the Lex Rex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you you'd go. like to learn more about our organization's activities or make a donation, please visit our website lexrex.org. And all donations are tax deductible. By the way, I got in a conversation with somebody earlier. They were not aware of that. So yeah, you can. That's right. Write it off on your taxes, assuming you itemize. Which yes. some some of you do, probably. Well, if you give us enough money, then it's worth your time to itemize. Exactly. Exactly. So How just much get that over is... that threshold, and then you can feel like you're cheating Uncle Sam out of what he thinks he's entitled to. It's Trust me, it's a good feeling. Okay. And... That and defending the constitutional liberties that we all hold dear. Yeah, I feel like maybe we should emphasize that more than feeling like you're getting away with something, even though you're actually not. A fair point. A fair point. I'll take it under advisement. All right. Anyway, I feel like we should probably just sort of get into it, especially because last week's episode was by far our longest. And yeah. So we got to. Today's, like today's got to really move, move fast today. You know, thing, next thing, next thing, next thing. So yeah, we'd like right. to keep. What's it our first item, David? Substantially under two hours this time. Well, first, we'd like to keep it in, the, you know, in the one hour range if we can. So 
Yeah, that's <laughs> ambitious, but I think I believe in us. All right, so it's been longer up, every week so far. Yeah, that's true. We need to reverse the trend. First up is something that really I think both of us just learned about yesterday. Kristen sent this to us, who uh, also works with the organization. But we both thought this was too ludicrous to to pass up. Also very serious. It it may have made our intro actually pretty apropos for today's episode. Fair. But (laughs) given the subject matter of the outer limits. So (laughs) you're giving that (laughs) away now. Now that we live in the twilight zone or the outer limits or whatever. David, what's the what's the twilight zone outer limits esque headline that we're reporting on today? Well, let me let me pull up the headline exactly. And I guess the g- good news is that they're apparently not going to be doing this anymore, but the much worse <laughs> They were apparently doing it previously, and I was not aware. It. Yeah. So this is the headline on NPR. Oregon is... Robots or, are going to take me. your kids, folks. Robots me, are going to take your kids. Oregon, as I believe you prefer to pronounce it on the West Coast. I grew up calling it Oregon on the East Coast. Huh, but Oregon is dropping an artificial intelligence tool used in child welfare system. Yeah, so because everybody knows that no one's better at caring for your kids than a robot. Yeah. I think the Jetsons proved that, didn't it? That's a little, maybe a little too lighthearted for what turns out to be a pretty <laughs> horrific thing that they were doing. So but what, what about just... uh, Lost in Space, where there was the, ro- you know, danger Will Robinson. Is that what happens? Is Does the robot alert CPS and say, you know, Danger, government bureaucrats. This kid needs to be taken from his parents. Well, apparently what this, not not exactly, but not too far off of that either, which is pretty upsettingly Orwellian, I suppose. Yeah, I don't mean, I mean, I am making light of it because of the inherent absurdity of it all. But But as basically, (laughs) I, I did a little bit of reading about this. Neither of us, I think, have had time to really drill into this too deeply because, like I said, we just learned about this yesterday. But apparently, Oregon was using this algorithm that was initially developed in Pennsylvania, but there it was always subject to human check, basically. So it would flag things, bring them to the attention of an actual human being who would then make a decision. Computers are pretty good servants. They're just really bad masters. And you you don't want them to make the final determination on anything. No. And apparently in Oregon, when the algorithm, which, you know, I haven't been able to determine what kind of data was being fed into this. I assume it's, you know. So from my, you and I may know different stuff about this. I don't know. But from my preliminary review, it appeared that when people would call the Oregon hotline to report Mm -hmm. child abuse or child endangerment or whatever, either it was the phone calls themselves or it was the the agents, I don't know what you call the, the agents in charge of the phone line, but whoever's manning the call, it was, it might've been their reports. So I think probably more likely it was information from their reports. And what it would do is it would correlate that with various risk factors for people who had previously been taken from their parents and put into foster care and look yep. for commonalities between the present cases and the ones that had been sent to foster care previously to assume that the same thing was likely here. Yeah. And as it turns out, in Oregon's usage of this tool, when the algorithm flagged things, or at least flagged things in a certain way, a mandatory visit to that home was required. So no questions asked. If it spits out a red flag, it has to be investigated, regardless of anyone reviewing the actual inputs. I I don't know where you even begin on an issue of this sort. I I guess 
you begin by saying, thank goodness it's gone now. But yeah. after taking a step back from that, that's horrifying that it ever existed. Obviously, yeah. I think the most shockingly Orwellian aspect of this is going to be the fact that robots are deciding when a CPS agent shows up at your house. But even in addition yeah. to that, the fact that they were using past cases where somebody was put in foster care presumes yeah. that they were doing it properly in the past. Yep. Well, and it's assuming that there's some kind of causal relation between what could be, you know, purely arbitrary correlations. And I, I guess apparently the straw that finally broke the camel's back on this one was that in addition to being sort of a horrifying nightmare dystopian device for taking your kids away, the program was also racist because yeah. it ended up unfairly and disproportionately targeting black families as opposed to families of other races. And at that point, that was too much for Oregon, so they got rid of the program. Yeah, which I guess, hooray for finally having some limits. But I yeah. feel like yeah. someone... Something's got to be a high enough priority. Apparently, racism is it. Yeah, I feel like describing what this thing was and how it worked and what it was supposed to do should have been enough on its own to get them to just never implement it. But yeah, I one guess, would think. I guess it's good to know that there are, you know, there are limits beyond which they will still not go. Apparently. Well, David, David, you see, humans make mistakes. Computers are infallible, <laughs> foolproof, yeah, and incapable of error. That's um, that's what a certain segment of the population would have you believe, anyway. <laughs> That's One what the, the HAL 9000 said in 2001 A Space Odyssey. Remember that? We've been spending a lot of time talking about decades-old sci-fi properties, and we should probably try to get out of this groove. <laughs> That's a fair point, David. Anyway, so with regard to this Oregon thing, though, you sent me something else today. So I, I have only... it's, hard, it's hard not to talk about decades-old sci-fi stuff when this is our topic of discussion. I guess that's reasonably fair, but I mean, this is barely even topical. AI is the 1960s. They were worried about that in the 60s. You know, there's that's not it's kind yeah. of an old thing. We've and, since then concluded that we shouldn't just do what computers tell us. And I, I guess. Thought. All right. If, if I have a point to make about AI and its application or preferably it's, you know, extremely limited application in law, you have to remember that whoever sets the parameters and sort of the criteria with which an AI works is still a yep, the, person the algorithm. with a meat brain. And whatever mistakes you're afraid of a person making, if they just make decisions, they can also make when programming an artificial intelligence. So You know, it's funny you should mention that. And I'm sure you're going to hate me for this, but that's actually exactly what happened in a Star Trek episode. The Ultimate Computer, which is where... Dr. Richard Daystrom had made new computers. They were supposed to run all the ships in Starfleet, and they do sort of a war games between Kirk and this other ship. And it turns out the program's flawed because it was made by a flawed person. And he couldn't help but basically put his own personality and his own flaws into the programming. So all that to say, yeah, you're right. Goes back to 60s sci-fi yet again. The only difference between the mistakes that a human makes and the ones that a computer makes is that because computers are mechanical, you know, they run off algorithms, is that they make their mistakes with regularity. Yeah. And, and every single time, as opposed yeah. to... <laughs> they will, in fact, form the basis of the machine's thinking rather than... All right. So what, what it probably means up. is that 
the Child Protective Services already had policies in place that uh, targeted black families disproportionately. Yeah, yeah, that's very likely. And beyond the, the that specific element uh, in Oregon and apparently in Pennsylvania as well, but although from the sound so of it, I guess takeaway: don't move to Pennsylvania. They still have theirs. But at least as far as I was able to determine, not with mandatory investigation powers. Which, yeah, gosh. That's, 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 I, I will say, I'm not sure how I feel about them using it, period, but I certainly prefer that it gets review rather than Oregon's policy. Look, if they, if they want to assign, like, this case is flagged red, this case is flagged yellow, this case is flagged green, and you kind of take that as a grain of salt and you actually still look at the details of the case and you make a decision based on that, you know, go ahead, that's fine. I don't have any issue with that. But when you start giving a computer the authority to make a decision on behalf of a person, well, that's when you're going to get 60s sci-fi references because that's a 60s sci-fi thing. Or um, when when did Orwell write 1984? I I assume I in think the 1948. 40s or, or you flip the flip yeah. the years, right? So oh, is that 48. that that would make sense? Yeah, and it, it's certainly certainly not 60s. But anyway. In addition to that specific policy, though, you, you, I think just doing some research on this topic in general, came across a different document that you sent to me earlier today that I've only read like a paragraph of, but that first couple of paragraphs was already yeah, so, guess, to, to pretty horrifying in, as well. To seg- yeah, just to segue into this document, an AI determining that you are at risk is not, I repeat, not a finding of probable cause. Somebody cannot enter your house because a computer told them to. That is not sufficient reason. They would need to obtain a warrant. And to get that warrant, they would need to state specific facts that show that a crime has likely taken place. The National Association of Social Workers disagrees with this. And they've actually published a, I don't know what you'd call it, maybe a white paper? Yeah, position paper, white paper, you know, yeah, it looks release, to me. It looks like know. it's designed to convince legislators to yeah. go a particular route on this again, stuff. Again, I've read about ten percent of this document, and that seems right from what I saw. We'll put a link in the description because we're not making this up. But yeah. what this document says is basically an argument for why social workers should not have a probable cause requirement in order to go into your house, and why they should be able to enter the premises without a warrant or probable cause of any kind. Just to be clear, they cannot do that. I've heard all the time where social workers try to convince people when they come to a house that they do have the authority to go in without a warrant. That's not true. Anybody from the government, they have no right to enter your home unless you have given them permission to do so or they've obtained a warrant or very limited exigency exceptions. So, my, my advice when a social worker comes to your house is the same as what it would be when a police officer comes to your house. This is not advice to you, the listener, but advice that I would give to a client in that situation. I would say, you know, if anybody comes to your house from a government agency, do not open the door, step right out, close the door behind you, make sure you have a pen and paper with you. Take down the badge number or the business card from whoever's talking to you. Write that down. Don't talk to them beyond that. Don't, certainly don't tell them what's going on. They'll ask you a bunch of questions. They'll suggest you have to answer them. That's not true. Don't answer the questions. Don't talk to them. Seriously. If 
They won't go away. If they come back another time, call a lawyer. You know, call us. We'll help you out. But don't talk to the police. Don't talk to social workers. I can't advise that more strongly. And you, if you want a lawyer, you can give us a call. That's area code 562-264-5515. Anyway, and like I said, I barely started reading this. And in part, that was because, you know, you, you just sent this to me shortly before we began. I didn't have time. But also because when I got to this sentence, which is the first sentence in the second paragraph, so, you know, barely into this at all. For those of like you reading this and your computer, you can click on the link in the description and you can read along. Well, I'm about to read it out loud. So you can, you can follow along, you know, like you used to do in grade school. Yeah. With your finger under the words. They say, quote, there is tension between the privacy rights of families and the need to investigate and identify child abuse and neglect in order to protect children. No, quote. there's no tension. There. there is not tension between your rights and anything else. Your no. rights are simply your rights. Yes. And the need to protect children, which that's is real, also a priority. Know. Yes. But it is but unrelated nothing. to anybody's rights. Exactly. And it is necessary. The nature of what a right is, is such that you can't just diminish or ignore it because you have other high priorities. But a, right a is computer something... can. <laughs> no, it can't. And Oregon was wrong oh. <laughs> to do that. But so, in that Star Trek and... episode where they were ruled by that machine god. Can we please stop? I am... <laughs> uh, this is really, it's too much. It's, yeah, it's, it's anyway. hard. And the struggle is real. Anyway, I, I understand that you're... Probably 20% of your brain at any given time is occupied just re like rehashing every episode of Star Trek. I understand oh, it's least. a struggle for you. At least. But it's not always appropriate. <laughs> anyway, it's, and, it's more appropriate right now than it usually is on this podcast. That's true. And so I'm not giving you too hard of time. But and to make it absolutely plain, we are not in any way trying to diminish the seriousness of child abuse or neglect. No, Those no. are obviously hugely important or, or issues. crime if, if we're saying what your rights are when the police uh, do an investigation right. i don't think that's even implied look child the, abuse is horrific the, so is government abuse yeah. yeah exactly and the problem with saying as the what was it the national association of social workers was that the organization yeah yeah nasa different from nasa <laughs> nasa yeah the problem with making an argument like they seem to be making, namely like, you know, this is so important that we need to have shortcuts through people's rights is that once you've made that shortcut, anyone with a vested interest in ignoring, minimizing, or otherwise, you know, getting around your rights will claim to be doing it for such a compelling reason. Obviously. Yeah. You've, you've opened the door to that. Right. And that's why it's very important, no matter how serious you think something is, that we go about it lawfully. That's the only way that we can ensure that people won't just abuse that claim of seriousness. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like if a, if a popular restaurant, you know, one of those ones where you order at a takeout window, if they said, you know, it's okay for you to cut in line as long as you got a really good reason, just wait yeah. how many people have really good reasons. Yeah, turns out about half the people will turn out to have really good reasons because they're the kinds of people who think it's okay to cut in line anyway. Right. right. And they'll just, and the, the honest people, the, the law abiding, the rule following people, the people who believe in fairness, those are the people who get hurt by that. Yeah. 
So anyway, I guess all that to say, no, you don't need extra legal powers to ignore basic constitutional rights just because you're investigating something serious. You know, some of the most serious things that can possibly happen still require search warrants. You know, you can't do a murder investigation and just be like, nope, not going to give you a warrant. You can't do that. You can't do that for protective services either. Right. And you shouldn't put a computer in charge of making the decisions about whether or not <laughs> parents get to keep their children. That yeah, seems that's... like it should have been obvious. One would hope. If you want a list anyway. of Star Trek episodes to watch about why you shouldn't do that sort of thing, you'll have to contact me off the air because I don't think okay. Dave is going to take, take any more of that today. No, I'm not. But the list right. is pretty long. Yeah, okay. And, all right, one of the reasons I was hoping you would cool it with the, the references is that our next topic is probably the, you know, heaviest emotional topic we've yet to discuss on this yeah. show. We didn't talk about this last week in part because we, you know, it, it happened a little too late into the preparation cycle and in part because we need, you know, we felt like probably better to allow some distance, but we are going to be talking about some of the issues that arose out of the massacre in Uvalde, Texas. So, yeah, yeah, I'm not really sure how to make a clean transition into that topic just because of, yeah, it was obviously, well, okay, appalling. Well, it was, was it 19 kids, two teachers that were massacred? I I believe, yeah, I believe that was the count of deaths with um, at least several more injuries obviously that does not happen without at least one extremely twisted disturbed person but it also doesn't happen without some mistakes being made by people in positions of power and right now i think what we're seeing with the uvalde situation is blame has become very politicized on this people on the right are I don't know what they're saying. Um, well, there's been talk about failures on the part of the school board or you know public schools broadly to implement yeah. adequate security. Um, no. but, but anyway, at least on the left, the, yeah. the message has become very clear on this. Guns are the problem. We got to get rid of the guns. And you know that's one place you can point fingers. Our goal is not going to be pointing fingers today, but we do want to talk about some of the systematic things or structural things that may have contributed to this tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in my opinion, I'll just start us off here, but in my opinion, one of the most really overlooked things that appears to me to have a pretty significant role in what happened is the the rise of what people are calling independent school district police forces. Of course, Uvalde had one. Most, I would say most School districts in the country do not have independent police forces. But basically, okay, so if you're a school and you're trying to hire a police officer because either you want to check kids for drugs or you want to keep kids safe or some combination of the two, what most districts have opted for is they'll contract with their local police department and they'll maybe rotate in one or two officers to the school and those officers will watch over the school. What Uvalde and an increasing number of school districts are doing is rather than contracting with somebody else, they're doing the whole thing in-house. And they've decided to create their own independent school district police forces. Sounds great. You know, officers who are trained to be able to deal more specifically with school-related issues. Yeah, but it's not, it may not be the wisest choice. And we actually recently published an article on this. What did we call that article, David? 
bizarre legal oddity may have played role in Uvalde tragedy. Yeah, and that's the bizarre legal oddity we're talking about, is this school yeah. district-specific police forces. Now, why is that a bad idea? I, I Probably you should be asking me, but I'm going to ask you anyway, David. <laughs> why is that a bad idea? Well, I think... And this is something that I'm the host touch today, on in the so article. I can, I can do that. That's true. That's true. That's a good point. This is something we touch on in the article that I think probably a number of school districts who have adopted this sort of policy are doing so from a place of fear. I think there's been, I don't, I don't know actually statistically whether school shootings are increasing. It certainly seems like they are. Um, well, there weren't many yeah. at all prior to 1999 or whenever columbine happened. columbine i think that was 98 but yeah certainly late 90s that was the first high profile one i think the first high profile incident that involved an elementary school which i think is just you know even more to my mind inexplicable yeah. as to was sandy hook which was yeah i think 2012 and anyway so there's certainly the perception at least and i think it, it certainly seems to me anyway that it would bear out statistically but increasing fear certainly of school shootings and so i think the the feeling that a lot of these school officials have probably is well if we have our own police force we can have someone permanently ready to respond to this and i'm sure that the training and the equipping of those officers is great but if your entire job as an officer is policing a school majority of what yeah. you're going to do on a day-to-day -day basis is going to be things like inspecting lockers for drugs or, you know, yeah. whatever other kind of mild keeping petty drug crime stuff they're doing. Yeah, keeping an eye out for kids cutting class, maybe sure. even depending yeah. on how quiet the school is. And it's not going to be responding to high-pressure, violent situations. That's just not right. the kind of thing that regularly goes on at the school. Whereas if you're getting a police officer from the general police department, they probably will have some experience doing that. And, yeah. you know, fact or of the matter is, it doesn't matter how much training you have on something, you're probably not going to be too good at it unless you've done it before. Yeah, or at least, and I think this may be even more important in some ways, you're probably never expecting as a school-specific police officer to be in that situation, even if it's in the, you know, you've had the training and in the back of your mind, you know it's a possibility. Whereas if you're, a, you, know, you don't a wake cop, up in the morning saying maybe today will be a school shooter day. Yeah. Whereas right. most cops do wake up in the morning and say, maybe my life will be on the line today. You don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you're a beat cop, if you're a regular, you know, sort of patrol officer, you probably are at least, you know, much closer to the front of your mind thinking about what if this is next person is dangerous? What if this next right. situation I find is going to be life or death? I'm not... Well, I have certain criticisms of the police. As I mentioned before, I do think police are necessary to the way that we run government today. Obviously, they're putting their lives on the line for the American people. I am not at all critical of the average police officer. But, you know, some of the training could stand to be improved, and certainly the unions could stand to be reined in a bit. Yeah, and I think... So I, th I think that's certainly true. That's going to be an always present factor when you're dealing with these school district police departments is that what they're used to what their sort of normal mentality has to be frankly it shouldn't be geared up for life or death scenarios no, because you're no, they're dealing with dealing kids with children right. and you don't want in fact to... if you if, so if you look at, i don't know if you can on google if you can look at news articles and you can sort by when they were written but 
if you were to go on Google at any point prior to May 24th and look up independent school district police force, all of the results are going to be people telling you that they are too much like regular police, that, you know, they treat kids like criminal suspects, that they are, you know, they're, they're people who are used to treating, I don't know why we would have any police treat the streets as a battlefield, but that's what they're used to. Yeah, and I do think the nature of policing in America, the way that it's been sort of perceived culturally, built up culturally, I think does have some issues. I think too often police are trained and encouraged to view the public in an antagonistic way. Yeah, and a, and a big a, part of that is threat. In, in the 90s, I don't know what started this trend. I have to look into it a bit. But a lot of police forces started giving priority and hiring to people who were military veterans. And they started yeah. to base policing off of a military model. Now, yeah. you know, I, veterans are great. I support veterans. But policing might be a job that's just a little bit too similar to what you were doing overseas. where Or potentially similar. similar. Well, it may, I'm sorry, it may appear at first blush to be similar. There's a chain of yeah. command. You know where you fall in that chain of command. You wield a weapon. But right. you know, those are very, very different things. Yeah. Soldiers fight the enemy. Police right. are supposed to protect the public. If you have yeah. police who are treated like soldiers, public starts to look a lot like the enemy. Right. And I think to the extent that we, you know, require police from a, certainly from a legal and especially constitutional perspective, the purpose of the police should be to ensure that no one has their rights infringed upon. So you see a crime, someone's rights are being violated there. Yeah. You want to stop that violation. That should be the purpose. And that will often entail, you're actually more deferential to the public than might seem reasonable. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like I mentioned in this week's or last week, last Friday's Ask an Attorney video, I mentioned that aggravated assault is assault of a woman, a child, or a police officer. And then I kind of joke, one of these things is not like the others. Well, that's true in a modern context because the use of force is fairly liberal by police forces nowadays. If the use of force historically, traditionally, when it was much, much less liberal in its use, makes a lot of sense that you would actually give heightened punishment to somebody who assaults a police officer because that person simply in the line of duty is putting themselves at great risk. They have to be around people who may be doing violent things yeah. and can't really respond to it with force. So anyway, all that to say, we don't, you know, th there may be a problem with the way the police are generally encouraged to treat even adult suspects, let alone the way, you know, the, the problems that would arise if you treat middle schoolers or elementary schoolers in a, you know, a, a harsh and suspicious way. I think very clearly, you know, you need to have even greater. But boy, is the opposite problem yeah. at play here. You know, <laughs> the, the police are getting constant criticism and we're among the people criticizing them for it. Although we don't intend to be negative in the criticism, but constant criticism for liberal use of force here, there were people, literally kids, calling in on 911, begging them to exercise force, and they didn't do it for over an hour. Yeah, and even under the best of circumstances, I think there are issues with that school district police department model. But yeah. certainly in this case, 
this was an extremely small department. We found six out officers. six officers. Eight, eight schools. Six exactly. officers for eight schools. Yeah, so more than a school per officer, and that's assuming that all of the officers are on duty at the same time, which I'm guessing is probably not a good assumption. The other thing is that police departments, well, and police response, particularly in crisis situations, is very hierarchical. It needs to be yeah. hierarchical. It needs to follow a chain of command. Well, I don't know if you ever watched one of those police procedurals or really like any 70s movie when... There's always, you know, whenever they're investigating a murder, there's always the police department in charge. And then the FBI shows up and they say, we're taking over. This is our investigation now. And then the local police yeah. officer says, no, this is my jurisdiction. You can't do that unless I hand over authority to you. Well, that's actually the way it works. And the police force that had direct jurisdiction over the Uvalde school district was the independent school district police force. Right. And for whatever reason, the head of this department never handed off that authority to local police. I believe the Texas Rangers, I believe possibly the Marshals, certainly the Border Patrol ended up showing up and actually solving the problem. I guess the Border Patrol commander put a lot of pressure on this guy to finally hand over, yeah. well, if not hand over, to actually use force, and then he finally did. But for whatever reason, that jurisdiction was never handed over to a more equipped body. Yeah, and... There, I think there's certainly going to be more that we learn as time goes on because the situation, as at least as as it has been reported reported so far, doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, no, it's extremely puzzling as to why, and you know, on one level, some puzzle pieces have sort of fallen. Into yeah, they, they said that it changed to a hostage situation, but they also report that they kept hearing gunshots, yeah. and they just assumed that he was shooting at the walls. Yeah, so there, there's a lot that doesn't make a lot of sense you know, from conflicting stories about how the gunman even entered the building eventually, you know, I think at first they said a teacher had left a door open. It later turned out she hadn't, she'd closed it, but maybe it was, you know, the, the lock had been broken at some point, you know, it, we're, we're not entirely clear on all of the sort of facts on the ground. One thing that I read today and I have to take it with a grain of salt because I've, I've read this from a couple sources, but I haven't, you know, I haven't, to my satisfaction, exhausted the verification for this, but apparently they're saying now the chief of police for the school district's department didn't have a radio while this situation was unfolding. I don't know if you'd heard this. What on earth? Yeah. I have not so, heard that. That would certainly do it. Yeah, and based on the... Everybody's waiting for orders and it's impossible for him to give them? Yeah, or, or, you know, he has to call on a cell phone or something, you know, who knows what was exactly happening, but... And why these 911 dispatchers were not able to send any of these distressed phone calls from the kids to the appropriate authorities, I also don't know. Maybe it has to yeah. do with that lack of a radio. Yeah, but so apparently, apparently they, they were under the impression that he was in what they call a barricaded hostage situation. So basically he had entered a classroom... They believed he was keeping hostages there. It turned out later he was, in fact, killing those children. But gosh, they didn't treat it as what they call an active shooter. You've probably heard that phrase. It gets thrown around a lot. As it turns out, this is why, because it describes it Even though he was of, firing rounds yeah. and they heard him firing. I, I don't want to leap to conclusions about who's at fault here. I just, I wanted to draw attention to the fact that 
there is a structure and a system yeah. in place that, while it doesn't make a result like this likely, it certainly doesn't make it more unlikely. Right. And, you know, for whatever else went wrong, and there, you know, clearly something went wrong, some things went wrong, but one of the key factors was indecisiveness as it came out. And I think we can point to this sort of confused arrangement of command structures. Yes. That played a, a, what seems to be a, a, yeah. a huge part. Particularly for state-level law enforcement, because not every school district has this. You know, Border Patrol shows up. I'm sure they didn't even know who was in charge. Right. And They would have assumed it was the local police department. Something else I read, I believe, from the New York Times. I'm not sure exactly. But someone was reporting, at least, that officers on the scene were trying to get through to whoever was in command and tell them, no, this is the situation on the ground. And for whatever reason, yeah. whether that's because of the different command structures in, in play or whether it really does come down to just the chief of police being un, you know unreachable or at least barely reachable without a radio it you know things didn't need to be yeah, that way well, we, we don't know and we likely will never know the full story but we may learn a bit through well you know even though we're not going to point fingers i'm sure somebody is i'm sure there's going to be a lot of lawsuits over this Yep. And I think that's our next topic of discussion is yeah. even if we can't place the blame, well, who can be sued with a reasonable chance of success? Yeah. And so I am I asking to, these questions. Yeah. <laughs> I, I wanted to bring this up in particular because this is something I've seen a lot of conversation online about this. People asking questions. OK, can we, you know, bring negligence charges could we bring you know you can awful, always sue somebody uh, a wrongful a wrongful death suit etc you can and, always sue somebody but it doesn't mean that you'll win and you yeah. shouldn't you shouldn't go with a lawyer just because he tells you that you'll win on a bad case yeah but and then one of the so that's the, the first sort of prong of this conversation that i've seen in repeated like repeatedly and in various forms is that someone should be held liable for this and then yeah. typically the response is people citing, you know, in sometimes vague, sometimes more specific ways, Supreme Court precedent that holds essentially that state actors have no obligation to intervene and in emergency situations. It's, it's a more complicated issue than that. So do you want me to get into some of the case law on this? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So controlling case, main case on this one is going to be DeShaney. Uh, that's a 1989 case. And what that case looked at was a, a young kid who had been abused by his father. And there had been repeated reports made to, I guess, probably social services saying that this kid is being abused and his dad would hit him. Eventually, his dad hits him so hard in the head that he becomes severely mentally incapacitated. And he has to spend the rest of his life in an institution. So what he ends up doing is he sues the County Department of Social Services on substantive due process grounds. That's 14th Amendment due process. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole difference between substantive and procedural due process today, but... Uh, yeah, maybe and, a topic for another know, time. Due process, substantive due process has its own set of issues I'm not going to get into, but basically what he's claiming is that he's been deprived of his liberty interest, and specifically, that's the liberty interest in bodily integrity. And he says that the employees of the Department of Social Services have deprived him of this interest because they failed to intervene. 
even yeah. though reports had been made. What the court rules is that, no, you, this injury was caused by your father. This injury was not caused by officials from the Department of Social Services. There are no constitutional claims against private individuals who aren't government actors. You lose. Yeah. And the other, the other big case on point is going to be the Castle Rock case. That's a 2005 case. Now, this mm -hmm. case was actually litigated by my colleague and friend, John Eastman. So I actually just called him before recording this podcast to sort of get his take on it. Okay. Uh, he represented the uh, police in that case, and he ended up winning in that one. And I, I actually, you know, I, I wanted to invite him onto our podcast. He's just lost his father. So, you know, my heart goes out to him. That's a hard place to be. So I ended up not inviting him to come on, but maybe we'll have him on on a future one. I think that's always an option. But I did speak with him for a few minutes about this. And basically what's going on in this case is, well, I'll, I'll first state the facts as they were presented on the record because what, what, well, there's a lot of procedural stuff going on in this, but sure. if you read this case online, what you'll read is that a mother had a restraining order against a father. They were divorced. Father picks up the kids. Mother calls the police, asks the police to enforce this restraining order. The police do nothing. And father ends up killing both of the kids. Mom sues the government saying that in this case, that her procedural due process rights were violated, specifically because she says that this restraining order is a proprietary interest, you know, that this restraining order is her property. And what procedural due process says is that you cannot be deprived of your property without due process of the law. Court ends up ruling against that, saying there is no proprietary interest in a restraining order. Therefore, you can't succeed on procedural due process grounds. Now, what I learned from my conversation with John Eastman is that there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes in this case that's really sort of legal strategic stuff. So there, there were so public advocacy groups that were challenging the DeShaney standard. That's the standard that I referred to from the first case. Yeah. And what a number of counties had done is they said, we need to find an ideal case where we can just sort of punt it at the lower court level. And that's what they did. You know, they didn't file an answer in response to the initial complaint. Instead, they filed a motion to dismiss. And because they filed a motion to dismiss, that means the court assumes all facts as alleged by the, the, the party that's suing, the plaintiff. So mm -hmm. alleged by Gonzalez in this case. If you actually look at the facts, there was no restraining order. In fact, the mother and the father had gotten a pretty standard divorce. There were standard form orders in that divorce, you know, things like don't harass the kids and don't unilaterally draw out of jointly shared bank accounts, stuff like that. No restraining order at all. Father actually had weekends unsupervised, weekends with the kids, as well as midweek dinners unsupervised. What he had done is he'd picked up these kids for a dinner midweek and they, they were gone for a long time. So Gonzalez, mom wasn't sure where they were. She calls the police, says, hey, my husband has the kids. You should investigate this. They don't do anything. She calls the husband. Eventually, he does pick up. Turns out that he's gone across state lines into Colorado where he's taken them to the amusement park. And she tells him, you know, you have no right to take my kids to a different state. I'm going to make sure that you never see your kids again. That makes the guy lose it. He sort of flips out, gets a gun and kills both kids. And then he commits suicide by cop, goes to the police station, and the police shoot him to death, 
killing him. Now, the other thing to note about this case is the reason the divorce occurred is the husband had caught the wife having an affair with the police sergeant. So that's probably some motivation in going to the police station. But needless to say, facts are really, really bad in this case. These are not facts that speak strongly in favor of finding the police department liable, right? Especially under procedural due process. So while the Supreme Court, so something you may not know about appellate courts, is they're required to accept the factual record from lower courts unless there is plain error. You know, their review of legal issues is de novo, brand new. They treat it as though they're the first court looking at it. Review of factual issues, we assume juries are good at finding out what the facts are. Well, when a jury doesn't find out what the facts are and you just get a motion to dismiss, well, those facts are still preserved on appeal. So that's a big part of the motivation of the finding in this case. But this case does stand for the proposition, really it's a pretty narrow proposition, that there is no proprietary interest in restraining orders. So... Yep. You may wonder, well, what what strikes you about these cases, David? Well, it does seem, I mean, for lack of a better term, sort of like an indirect or roundabout way to go about it. You'd think, yeah, you know, maybe a more direct challenge on the basis of, you know, gross incompetence or negligence or something like that on the right. part of the authorities. Yeah, when the police are negligent rational. and they refuse to protect your kids or refuse to protect you from your father... That doesn't really seem like a constitutional violation, does it? You wouldn't think so. Well, the, so, and this gets I into sort of the strategy that constitutional attorneys like us need to do when bringing these cases, because you're dealing with a lot of different competing kinds of immunity and trying to see where you can find an opening, like a, you know, a chink in the armor so you can get a sword in there. But, you know, all that to say, when it comes to constitutional due process liability, state actors have for essentially what would be negligence. A lot of really bad case law on that. Honestly, if anything, it's gotten a little bit worse since Castle Rock. I think Castle Rock was properly decided. But if anything, the courts just kind of kept going in that direction, saying that almost never is an agent of the state going to be liable for a constitutional violation. So why aren't they liable for things like wrongful death, negligence? Why do they have to be sued over these constitutional violations in the first place? Well, that's because of a little thing that you may have heard of before called qualified immunity, yeah. which traces its origins to Malley v. Briggs. That's a 1986 case. And basically what that does is gives agents of the state, so government employees, immunity from tort liability when acting within the scope of their duty. The rationale is that it's supposed to allow them to make reasonable but mistaken judgments about open legal questions, and it's supposed to extend to all officials but the plainly incompetent or, the, or those who knowingly violate the law. So those end up being the exceptions. You generally can't get them for things like negligence, wrongful death, what have you, unless you can show that they're just you know, blatantly incompetent or that they have yeah. knowingly broken the law. And as a side note, this is one of the reasons why very often, especially police officers who are accused of, you know, some kind of impropriety will claim ignorance of the law because right. if it's, you know, if, if they say they didn't know and you would, now you'd think a police officer not knowing the law 
would be blatantly incompetent, but the courts disagreed with that. They say that yeah. apparently it can be your job to enforce the law and you don't have to know what it is. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that's also subject to a reasonable person standard. So, like, you know, if it's, yeah, so Reason, but it's reasonable person in the same situation. So it's a right. reasonable police officer standard, which apparently yeah. is a lot lower than a reasonable yeah. regular which, person, which may speak to judges tending to have a low view of police. But yeah. that's I, I referenced that in one of our past podcasts. Right. I, right. These judges tend to be that was not a slight on the police. These judges tend to be very elitist. A lot of them, well, they all went to law school. They all have doctorate degrees in the law. They tend to think of blue-collar people as, well, kind of slow, and their opinions reflect that. So that's what I was getting at when I said yeah. that. Yeah. I don't think that's true. You know, I think I know a lot of cops who are very intelligent and don't ever judge somebody by their degree. That's absurd. Yeah, but, or their job. Or their job, yeah. yeah. Anyway, but basically, so, so the way that was an aside, yeah. Within very rare exceptions, which may apply here, given the degree of incompetence that it looks like may have been taking place, but within yeah. very narrow exceptions, you cannot sue for general tort liability. So usually, you try to go one of these constitutional routes. These are all strategic considerations that lawyers yeah. would think about. I'm not going to go into great detail about what my strategy would be because that's. You don't want the other side to know legal strategy if you do end up litigating this. And I don't know if I'm going to be roped into some of the lawsuits on this or if we'll be contacted. But I think there's a better way of going about this than just either the tort or the constitutional route. But even if they did go one of those routes, I think that it's possible that they could meet these standards. Yeah. So anyway, I'm not sure there's more to go into at the moment, but... Obviously, terrible event and seemingly at least terrible response to it by the authorities. And, you know, we'll have to, yeah. we'll but, have to you know, how, keep an eye on it. Everybody's been reporting there's no way to hold these officials liable. That's, we better hope that's not true. And I don't think that is true. I disagree with the American Bar Association or whoever wrote that. I think you can hold them accountable. Yeah. But that's, if something like this that's horrible happens, it doesn't make up for it by any stretch of the imagination of course. to find somebody is liable for what happened. Of course, it never can. But we like to think that we live in a society where there are just consequences for what yeah. people do. Well, and ideally also make someone, you know, think a little bit harder in the future about how they're handling themselves in that kind of situation. Yeah. But, yeah. all right. Anyway, we'll move on now to our last topic for news review, you know, much less weighty, but something we've been tracking for a while. So we've reported separately on social media laws coming out of Texas and more recently, Florida. We just want to give you kind of an update on that. Yeah. Back to Texas again, where, you know, I think the, the last time we talked about it, the, the news was that the fifth circuit court of appeals had basically reached a decision. We'll, we'll talk about the details and you know sort of more of how this worked technically in a minute, but basically they'd reached a decision that allows Texas to continue enforcing a law they had drafted about social media companies while the yeah. appeal was ongoing as to whether the law could stand at all. Which I, I think you know I don't remember exactly the procedural history, but I think that the 
was it did it start in federal court? I think it did. Yeah, I, so I believe a district court issued yeah, the so district preliminary injunction. So it's gone back and forth a couple times now. Well, it ended up most recently with the Supreme Court making a ruling and by a you know, 5-4 decision reversing the circuit court's decision. So the sure. the preliminary injunction is That's, back on. Origin, originally the preliminary injunction was granted. And then it was reversed yep. by the circuit court. And then Uno now it's reverse back. again. So you know. yeah, they could do it. Then they couldn't do it. Then they could do it again. Right. What's that? Um, what's that song that all the kids like to dance to? I have no idea what you're talking about. And when you say the kids, I suspect you might be talking about teenagers from 1970. So. Uh, <laughs> you really won't let me catch a break, will you? I. I don't. Your frame of reference for you know, pop music in particular is often very opaque to me. So I really don't know what you mean. Oh, what's the name of it? I'm not going to say. I mean, it. frankly, I don't know that much of what the teens are listening to these days. Um, <laughs> it's uh, Oh, that's the cha-cha slide. Okay. That was from like when we were in middle school. <laughs> really? It's well, hold on. Let me, I, I know they played it at middle school dances at my, school i'm guessing it's probably even older than that let me uh let me see if i can find the oh wow yeah it was released in 2000 2000 yeah so it's i'm way off that that song could drink legally if it were a person wow let's let's cut all of this don't leave this in if you're hearing this it was above my over my objections so yeah i'm leaving at least a substantial amount of this in i can tell you that oh well anyway so, Not much I can do about that, I suppose. No. So, but anyway, long story short, we're basically back to the. Can I talk about '60s sci-fi again? No, we're basically <laughs> back to the second phase of this whole law. So, phase one, they put out this law, it was going to impose restrictions on social media companies. Then a court issued a temporary injunction, or uh, excuse me, a preliminary injunction. And one of the things that you wanted to talk about was to. Just because sometimes this terminology can be a bit obscure, yeah. So we wanted to I, actually I think people, dig into what that means. You know, it's it's if I had a dollar, eh, even a quarter. If I had a quarter for every time that I had a conversation with somebody about one of my cases, and you know, I had a past conversation with that person, then I said, you know, we won on this motion, or we won on this injunction, or whatever it is, and then I talk to that person again, and they ask what's going on in the case, and I say, and they say. I thought you already won on that. Yeah. There's a lot of different stuff that goes on in lawsuits. And, and yeah. I, so it's not just one and done on most of these things. Yeah. It's usually a series of steps that have to go on. If somebody asks for a preliminary injunction, what they're asking for is for the court to stay whatever. So that doesn't mean like keep. That means... Prevent. Put a halt so, to, yeah. Yeah, for the court to put a halt to whatever conduct has been going on that the plaintiff was complaining about when they right. filed the lawsuit. And that that injunction ends up applying for the duration of the lawsuit until the, eventually, you know, all the facts can be heard and the case can actually be given its fair time and a verdict can be rendered saying whether or not that law should be kept or not. Yeah. So when somebody wins on an injunction... There's a much lower standard. They have to show they're likely to win on the case as a whole, on their merits. But it's not the same as winning. It just means that that the law can't be in effect until the case has been decided. 
So these are immediately appealable. If you don't like the result of a of an injunction, of a preliminary injunction, you can immediately appeal that. If you don't like that result, you can appeal it again. And that's heard on shortened notice because the whole point is to prevent harm for the duration of the case. So that's what happened here. Supreme Court has said at least that there is a likelihood of success on the merits. So they've decided that they're going to stay this law. Yeah. Yeah. So, and typically when these injunctions reach the Supreme Court, you're just going to get either a yes or a no, which is what happened here. There's no opinion of the court. They usually don't issue an opinion when injunctions like this are heard. I guess David mentioned that there was a dissent in this case, though. I haven't read yeah. that yet. But yeah. So it was that, that's, um, occasionally they'll do that. Uh, yeah. That's and it was a, it was a short common. one, too. I think it was like six pages, if I recall correctly. So who wrote that? Alito. Samuel Alito was the one who wrote the dissent. It was actually an interesting division of the court. Maybe we'll we'll have a minute to talk about this later, but the votes against three of them were fairly oh, typical. Just to be clear, these are votes against granting the injunction. Yeah. So basically okay. the those who voted to that, that the law is okay and we should keep it. <laughs> or at least we right. shouldn't to presume it that it's that it's not okay. Um, yeah, for now. It's okay for the duration of the case. Yeah. So Three of them, I think, were fairly predictable in Alito, Clarence Thomas, and Neil Gorsuch. Interestingly enough, the fourth vote on that block was Elena Kagan, which she hmm. typically doesn't vote with those three. Yeah. She didn't well, it's, join. It's more common than you think, but. Well, in, in controversial cases, I should say. Because yeah, well, I, I say that uh, social media is a little bit less political than some of the stuff yeah. that goes across the court's docket. Yeah. And as we've noted before, you know, bears reiterating. By far, the most common kinds of decisions from the Supreme Court are either unanimous or like eight to one. That's the bulk, yeah. easily the bulk. And actually, the you know the more narrow decisions are almost always highly controversial cases. They get the most attention, so people I think tend to think they're the most common outcomes. That's just not true. But no, not at all. Anyway, Kagan though uh, Justice Kagan did not join in the written dissent. So Alito penned this dissent. Thomas and Gorsuch joined in his dissent. So she, she just, what that means is she dissented for other reasons. Then, but as yes. we mentioned, you don't have to say what those reasons are when it's just an injunction. So she opted not to do that. Yeah, exactly. And I wanted to, very quick aside, I, it occurred to me just when you were talking about it, I think maybe one of the reasons that, you know, for lack of a better term, lay people don't always quite follow with the steps of a court case is that I think the phrase winning on very often will remind people of like the idea of winning on a field goal or a, a three pointer or something like you won the game and you won it on this one action, meaning you know, oh, you by this yeah. action, yeah, which is sense. not, which is not what it means in a trial context. It means you won that specific part of the trial. Yeah. You won yep. the decision on the motion, but the motion isn't the whole case, you know? Yeah. Anyway. And there, there will be cases that have, thousands of motions in them before they're done. So. Yeah. yeah. So winning on one part of it is by no means the same as actually winning the case. Yeah. Anyway, but we were talking, <laughs> we were talking about preliminary injunctions and that's pretty much all I have to say about okay. that. Fair enough. All right. So, <laughs> yeah. So basically in, you know, the thing to bear in mind is that at least in theory, while, you know, all these fights are occurring over the injunction, and it went, ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court, which narrowly decided to reimpose, basically, the injunction, 
in theory, at least all this time, the case itself is still chugging along. Other yep. things are happening yep. and we're not even close necessarily, at least, you know, logically. And the plaintiff is close. just hemorrhaging money, paying it to all their attorneys because <laughs> it's very expensive to bring appeals. Yeah. And yeah, but <laughs> that's why we need your contributions and they are tax deductible. Yeah, not not that we're specifically involved in this case, but litigation in general is very expensive and it's a, we, it's ridiculous. I mean, and, if we do it as cheaply as we can. We're we're a very streamlined organization in terms of the legal work that we do, but that's, uh, it's yeah. just a lot of hours. And yeah, in, we're certainly not in this to make money. We want to keep the costs for all of our clients absolutely as low as we can get them, but we do it for free if we could. And but one, we need a lot of funds to do that. Yeah, we we need we rely upon the generosity or what is it in that that play uh, the kindness of strangers. That's what it is. Streetcar named Desire. In order to yeah, keep, but that was like as she was going insane and being carted <laughs> off to the yeah. Well, I, didn't she say it at the beginning too? I don't know. I'm not actually sure. I think I read that play. I don't think I've ever actually seen it. I'm pretty sure oh, we the, read movie, it the movie the movie is pretty good. It's, it's got Marlon Brando and Vivian Lee. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. I guess that's a plug for Streetcar Named Desire. Um, <laughs> yeah, watch a watch a sixty year old movie. Anyway, uh, but all that to say, you know, if you do feel you know the inclination, your generosity can help us keep costs minimal for people who are in sometimes some pretty desperate straits. So that's just a it plug. all goes directly to that, by the way, because yeah. every dollar that we get in the contribution is a dollar that we don't have to take from a client. Yeah. Anyway, so that's, you know, you can go to our website and make a donation if you feel so compelled. That's lexrex.org slash donate. L-E-X-R-E-X dot org. We've actually, we've got a fundraising drive going on right now for the election integrity projects that we're working on. We have a goal of $30,000, which we want to raise before the election. So yeah. I think this comes out on Monday. We've got about a day to do that. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. as of right now, I think that we've, well, when we're recording this, and I won't say when that is, we're not that close to the goal. No. But, but I'm confident we'll get there. Anyway, I guess th this has become our de facto plugs section, I suppose. But anyway, back to the actual case at hand. <laughs> uh, this was something, so you, you mentioned you... We've you, got matching on those contributions, by the way, which is why yeah. it's the goal of 30000 Yeah. You mentioned you didn't get a chance to read the dissent, but there was something in there that I thought was you know, interesting. And we've sort of alluded to this previously, but one of the reasons, so Justice Alito didn't say, you know, he didn't make a strong statement. He didn't come out and say, no, that, you know, I believe that Texas's law was absolutely going to stand and should stand and blah, 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 all this stuff. He basically said, I, you know, we can't be confident enough about this to allow the injunction to stand because the, the injunction depends on, as you mentioned, the likelihood of success. And right. so one of the things he noted... And fundamentally, what they're pushing for in this case is a change in the law. Yeah. And so it's, I, don't, I don't... Frankly, I don't know how you win. I, I mean, that's sort of a rhetorical way of saying that. But I don't think it makes much sense to win on an injunction when what you're pushing for is a change to the law. Yeah. You might but, win on the merits. It makes a lot of sense to win on the merits if it's a legally valid or appropriate change to the law. But... It doesn't make much sense to win on an injunction. Anyway, and one of the things he highlighted, which, as I said, we've alluded to before, is, is basically that the Internet, legally speaking, you know, in terms of the way it folds into the existing field of law, very new. And that's, that's basically what he said outright. He said, and I'm quoting, 
The law before us is novel, as are applicants' business models, meaning um, social Mm -hmm. media companies. It is not at all obvious how our existing precedents, which predate the age of the Internet, should apply to large social media companies. Boy, that's a whole discussion on its own, because Lex Rex Institute does have positions on the way that we think Internet companies and online media ought to be treated. Mm -hmm. Very simply, we think you don't need any new rules for it. We Because stuff that we do online is fundamentally the same as the stuff that we did previously. It's just usually faster and over yeah. greater distances. Yeah, but I, I do think Oedo has a point, though, that even if that does end up being sort of the jurisprudential answer, namely, you know, it's not really something new happening, that decision itself isn't completely clear yet. You know, Yes, because yeah, need... a lot of courts have not ruled that way. Right. That's, as we've mentioned before, judges are not at their finest when dealing with issues relating to computers. And, and un- we've got a lot of very so. strange rulings on this stuff. Yeah, understandably so. Most of them, you know, necessarily were young people before the age of the internet, don't really have formative experiences with the internet in many instances, and obviously they're trained in different fields yeah. than that. Even young lawyers are not great with computers. Just lawyers and computers don't get along. <laughs> You're a decent, you know, IT guy in a pinch. I'm, I'm the say. exception here. Yeah. <laughs> I know a little bit about it. I mean, I made that intro, so I know something Oh, yeah. About no, absolutely. Yeah. You, <laughs> you know, certainly better than the prototype I whipped up previously that I, I did in about 15 seconds and sounded awful. So, um, I'm, see, I'm, constant, I'm constantly worried that computers are going to become our overlords and enslave us. So I've had to learn just a little bit about them. That's not true. I'm not at all worried about that. I think that's a no. pretty yeah. ridiculous well, and kind of maybe, dumb thing to worry about. But we'll, <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to launch a separate podcast where we talk about um, technology and people's weird ideas about it. Because, yeah, I, I'm, I've never found the whole idea of an AI apocalypse particularly sensible or compelling, but just don't program it to do that. Exactly. Program it not to have an apocalypse. Yeah. If you read Asimov's laws of robotics, just use those. Yeah, I will. Okay. I'll, I'll put it in one sentence since you're provoking me here and I blame you. I tricked you into talking about sci-fi again. Yeah. I, I find the idea that, that, all of these AI apocalypse scenarios seem to have, whether that's Skynet in Terminator or the Matrix or whatever, is that somehow machines will inherently, I guess, just have human-like psychology for some reason, that they'll like right. be selfish and invent independent desires. I have no idea why people think that would happen. but Well, what I, what I find particularly, I don't know why we're talking about this, but what I find particularly <laughs> ridiculous is it's artificial intelligence, right? It can't replicate organic intelligence. For instance, we can't even make a computer model that perfectly replicates everything that a paramecium will do. A single-celled organism. We can't make a computer that will every time be able to do the same thing as a paramecium and exercise intelligence that's identical to that of a paramecium. Which, if you don't remember from your high school biology, that's a a one-celled organism. I did say that. Oh, did you? I said that. Oh, yeah, I, I said single-celled organism. Okay, I, I tuned out because you started talking about paramecia. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, but it's, I would think if we want computer intelligence, AI, that's going to be able to emulate human psychology, I think we would see probably ones that can 
emulate paramecium psychology first. I mean, that seems like a first step. And then maybe they don't even have brains, but clearly they're doing something besides just stimulus response. And then above that, you know, maybe slug psychology and then maybe eventually yeah. dog psychology. But it's it's going to be a way off from no. where we are right now. No, I, I think, you know, that may be fairly ambitious. I think dogs have a, a very rich inner life compared to I most, skipped a few steps there. I, to I definitely organisms. skipped a few steps between slugs and dogs. Yeah. That's for sure. All right. Anyway, I feel like we're pretty far afield here. Especially that's... lawyer dogs. All right. Yeah, I guess go go back and listen to previous episodes if you want to know more about that. <laughs> anyway, I, that's that's become a, you know, a, I guess a, an obligatory thing we have to say every episode is go. I'm go thinking about our changing our letterhead from saying Lex Rex Institute Constitutional <laughs> Advocates to Lex Rex Institute Lawyer Dog. Please don't. All right. This is <laughs> all this. But is then if probably, our clients try to invoke their right to counsel that way, they'll probably win. This is probably a, all this uh, distraction and wandering. It's probably a good indication that we should move on to our final segment. We're going to try to, as we said, enough. try to keep this enough. to a tighter timeline. If, we, if we're under an hour and a half, I consider that a success. So you guys right. have clicked on the podcast already. You know if we're there. Yeah. Ideally, I'd like it to be a little less than that. But, you know, we'll see. And last time... Okay, I'm not sure how many more times I'm going to keep repeating this, but those of you who have listened to every episode thus far know that we call this a different thing every time, or at least we have so far. At some point, we're going to probably settle on a name, or we're just going to stop giving it a name. But Call it the the afterburner, because it's at the end of the episode. That's that's, not too bad. That's not bad. That's not bad. That's not what I'm going with this time, though. Last time, it was Hal La Peños, and you were very upset with that that. one. That is terrible. That is absolutely horrendous. I don't necessarily disagree, and it wasn't really my idea. It was an adaptation of someone else's. But You won't even take take blame for it now. Well, I mean, I'm the one who has to be blamed for it, but I guess (laughs) I'm, I'm the final one in that causal chain. But throw somebody else under the bus. Well, I'm not naming names. Anyway, <laughs> you did. I think you did last week. Last last time I did, yes, because you <laughs> asked, and you're not you're not asking now. Anyway, last last time around it was that, and we you know you complained, and we started talking about what other things could it be that are not food related, and so this time we're just going with the one that I suggested then, and we were both kind of like, oh yeah, it's pretty good, the, the Crucible. So we're gonna put these hot takes to the test. All right. Hopefully, we have some about witches. I don't think there are any about witches, but I guess that's another plug for an extremely old piece of media that neither of us particularly likes, but (laughs) Arthur Miller's The Crucible. And also there's a a movie version, maybe two movie versions. Or if you want to watch a witch trial, there's a particularly good one in Monty Python's Monty Python and the Holy Grail. That's true. Yes. That's probably my favorite witch trial in media. We can actually plug that that movie, I think. That's a pretty good movie. All right. Um, Okay. So that's what this was. Uh, I'm also, again, at your insistence, trying to make sure we get more that isn't from Twitter, even though Twitter is by far <laughs> the most convenient way to get this stuff. So yeah, it just seems to be something that draws. I think it's bad the opinions. I think it's the, the character limit. It, people trying to be concise end up saying some really dumb stuff. Oh yeah, lawyers are bad at that. Yeah, it's, I, anyway. I can't count the number of motions that I've worked on where the majority of the time was spent trying to get what we'd already written within the page limit. Yeah. Anyway. This one, I think, is another one from Reddit. People canvassing lawyers about weird, odd things they've seen. I think in this case, it wasn't actually a lawyer who responded, but he said, you know, non-lawyer here, and then he had this to say. So this was his story. So he says, Mm -hmm. where I live, new drivers get a learner's permit, 
and require a fully licensed driver to sit in the front passenger seat when they are driving. I prosecuted a kid with a learner's permit who was driving a oh, group so of Oh, so it is an friend. attorney. My, my mistake. Yeah. This is an attorney. But the kid in the front seat didn't have a license. He testified that there was someone in the back with a license. When I asked why he let the kid without a license sit in the front instead of a fully licensed driver, he said, well, he called shotgun. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do? So No, that's that's right. That's that's legally defensible. I okay. don't think that he had right. any other choice. Yeah, no, that, that's what certainly what I was inclined. That's to. a far more ancient law <laughs> of calling shotgun. Yeah. <laughs> far, holds far more authority than whatever state statute requires a fully licensed driver to sit in the front passenger seat. I'm trying to remember the phrase from the line, the witch in the wardrobe, but there's a scene, you know, after yeah. this, would, this would be an instance where the law compels you to do that, which is wrong. <laughs> I'm pretty sure after, you know, I, I assume most of you are probably familiar with the story of that book and movie, blah, 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 whatever. But, you know, Aslan, lions, witches and wardrobes. Yeah, so Aslan, got the, he's, he's got killed gist. on the stone table. And then, you know, he comes back to life and the children are saying, well, you know, how did this happen? And he says, well, the witch who killed him didn't know. I think he says about the deeper magic. And yeah. <laughs> he didn't know about the, the deeper law yeah. of shotgun. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the rule of shotgun is ironclad, at least. It's actually ask. not. All, all of that's, I, I hope people know this, <laughs> Understood all of that's that we, a joke. That we were yeah, being facetious, yeah. I mean, I actually, I feel kind of badly for the poor kid. It's yeah. Great. And, and, I think he's probably in the wrong here. Legally, yes, but not morally. Um, no, is, not morally at all. This is probably the appropriate time to repeat our by now customary statement that if you take legal advice from any podcast, doesn't matter whose, it's not a good idea. So that includes Yeah, you're going to make a lot of people mad at you. They're yeah. going to think that you're really dumb. Yeah, don't do it. And it's they, not... they might hold you in contempt of court. That's yeah. always a possibility. You should you should consult with an, an attorney about your actual situation before relying on things you heard on a podcast. I think yeah, that, please. that's generally true. Even our podcast. You can even consult with me about things you heard on our podcast. And I might say, you know, that was pretty generalized advice. Doesn't apply to your situation. Yeah. All right. Let's go on to our next one. Okay. I, I believe this is also a Reddit item. You, you, you went on Reddit legal advice, didn't you? Well, I've, I found someone because the easy, all right, I will say the sort of effort to reward ratio is very bad. Just going directly to a social media platform and just looking around for these. So Makes this was sense. someone collating, you know, highlights from legal subreddits, I believe. So that's what, that's all why right. there's this, a, a, a list number here. This was number four on that person's list. So this person says, I do patent law. I once had a guy try to pay our firm to fight a large company because, quote, he had a dream he actually invented that. Yeah. Wow. So, you know, <laughs> how, how, do, you know, what, what, I guess, is this admissible uh, if, evidence? If you Can take you a client's money for that case, if you take a client's money for that case, you should be disbarred. That is, yeah, and I, I think he, extremely he's, unethical. It sounds like this guy didn't take yeah, the money. Good for him. I think he's pretty clearly that's, implying he didn't take the, the, the guy's case. But. That's funny though. You know, I, I've had clients come to me with really bad cases that they were certain would win. I don't know that I, yeah, there's this some is, on par. Those, they're probably subject to attorney-client privilege, so I can't tell you what they were. Right, but uh, this one's this one's toward the top of the bad ones. Yeah, this one I, you know, I think I've mentioned on the show before. To keep myself entertained while I'm doing the work of preparing for these podcasts, I, I sometimes give you know sort of vaguely fanciful names. Titles yeah, that's what you said to, to the files. Yeah. So in this case, uh, in honor of uh, a coworker of my, well, ex-coworker, friend of mine, 
who used to refer to people who just, you know, come up with a pie in the sky idea and then expect everyone else to implement it. He referred to those people as Imagineers, which is what Disney uses to refer to its sort of creative types. I think we're going to have to pay money to Disney now that you've said that. <laughs> Maybe so. But anyway, I, I referred to this one <laughs> as Imagineers. Fair use, Disney. It's fair use. Yeah. I, re- I saved this one we're as We're a nonprofit. Ima- we have broader latitude on fairly fair use. <laughs> I, I, I saved this one as Imagineering because I felt like this was the purest example of that. So I don't know if my friend Devin listens to these podcasts, but if he does, that one's an honor of you, buddy. Yeah, that's so. I mean, you might not know this, but having a dream about something is not legally equivalent to filing a patent with the patent office. Okay. Now, accepting that that's the case, and I'll have to take it on faith that you're right there. <laughs> I'll have to assume, you know, however little I can trust you on this. You know, would dreams be admissible as evidence in a trial? Could I say, uh, you know, I had a dream about this and I'm pretty sure it was real. You know, that's actually a less ridiculous question than it might sound initially. I think it would be because that that's, uh, you, you could say that it that's... It could be evidence of something. Somebody's I'm impression, imagine. right, yeah. yeah. It's now, now, the better question is, if in your dream you heard somebody say something and you're trying to admit that for the truth of the matter that it asserts, is it hearsay? Hmm, Interesting. I don't know that that's been resolved by the courts. I don't know that there is an answer to that. Yeah, there might not be. Yeah. Something to think about. Something to keep in your back pocket. Yeah, because you're, you're allowed to testify about mental impressions, and a dream, even if it's something somebody said in a dream, it's yeah. still a mental impression, yeah. or right? At, that's at what the, I'd argue. At the very least, it, it is potentially shedding light on your mental impression, because you know it may not be a one-to-one correspondence just because you dream Now, about if somebody it. wrongs you in a dream... Can you sue them? Mm-hmm. You can sue anybody. Yeah, you can sue anybody who, if you can find. Well, actually, even if you can't find someone willing to take your case, because you could just yeah. represent yourself. Even if you, but even if it's not a real person, you can sue them. It's just you're going to have trouble doing service of process on them. But you can still yeah. sue them. I wouldn't recommend it, and your lawyer will probably be disbarred for malpractice. But yeah. you can do it. You can sue anybody. You yeah. just shouldn't. Oh, okay. This is an interesting one. It's another one of those nested social media instances. What I'm actually going to show you is a tweet, but it's a tweet of a screenshot of a Reddit post and then oh. a response so to this, that. Re- we've got a recursive hot take then. Sort of, but then it comes back in the end to the actual hot take is is on Twitter. Okay. Again. I'll give it to you. That's a technicality. We allow legalisms here, so... Yeah. All right. So I can't. There's no way I'm going to be able to read yeah, that. That let, is let me, like let for me a re- flies eyes or something. Let Let me read this one. Okay. So I guess flies have really bad eyesight. We start something small. Yeah. We start and this is someone summarizing a post on the subreddit r slash relationships, which is basically where people go to ask you know advice about their personal relationships usually romantic and it, some of these things are the most insane stories you've ever heard the summary the summary of this post is as follows my and then she says you know she's a 24 year old woman boyfriend who is 26 year old man keeps eating raw hamburger is there anything i can do to help him and then <laughs> so cook that's it. what you know the, that's you can someone, cook it that would help so, him. Someone posted this on Twitter. That's thinking people would be. I probably shouldn't say that. <laughs> Maybe not. Um, 
anyway, so I didn't mean it in a sexist way. That's just is a way that you could help him. Okay. Regardless of your gender. Someone posted this on Twitter, I think assuming people would be amused by the strangeness of the situation. But then someone else on Twitter responds and says, uh, if she doesn't stop him and he eventually dies, she will be charged for complicity murder. Complicity murder. Yeah, not complicity Uh, in murder, mind (laughs) you. The special kind of murder. Complicity Complicity murder. murder. Yeah. So does that strike you as uh, true? Well, let's, let's try to review what we talked about earlier. Now, if this woman works for the government, we all know the answer, right? <laughs> Can't be sued. Qualified immunity. Yeah. But if she's a private citizen, the answer is still no, folks. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you can't. No, uh, that's generally you need to commit a certain act in order to be liable for complicity in any crime. Murder is one that has a very specific mens rea or intent requirement. It's malice, which means malice means either intent or with reckless disregard for the consequences of your actions. You know, maybe if somebody else, he's, he's, what, he's murdering himself and she's, yeah. no. The answer is no. Uh, it's too off base for me to give a cogent reason why <laughs> the answer is no, because it's there's too many things that are incorrect about that. Especially because I'm pretty sure from the you know the the part of the screenshot that I can actually read, it sounds like she was trying to convince him not to continue eating raw hamburger anyway. <laughs> and well, yeah, I guess is she, is she <laughs> that's a good fault? point, David. Is she at fault for him just being too stubborn to take very basic life advice? I guess it seems like the answer would be no. No, you would not be complicit in his murder uh, if he killed himself with raw R- raw meat. Meat, yeah. 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 I mean, I feel like though I do recommend cooking meat. Yeah, no, I think by and large, I can agree with that. There are certain exceptions. Sushi is fine. Is um, that meat? That's that's fish. Well, fish. I mean, it, it depends on how you define meat. If you just mean muscle tissue of an animal, then it's meat. But yeah, that's um, true. And then you know, people eat tartar. <laughs> I, I don't personally. All right, I guess this this next one should probably be the last one because I think we're probably yeah we're at an hour forty at this point. Okay this this next one. Bear in mind, we do not have a lot of time left, so you got to be, you know, we, I need you to can do, can do, to keep know, a lid on I'll it. Be, all right, I, I think I'll you're gonna, quick. yeah, you're quick gonna be upset. Take. You're gonna be upset, but try to get past that. Okay, it's from Twitter, and it says exactly the Second Amendment is actually a protection of the people from the states. It says states cannot forbid the people from federal public service. That's actually literally what the whole thing is about. Don't take my word for it. Just read up on Shay's rebellion. Yeah, this is a very confused person, I think. Um, I'm very well read on Shay's rebellion. I have no idea what he's talking about. I I think, I just am now noticing this, that the the profile picture he has appears to be him in combat gear. Looks like he may have served in the military. So this seems like something that, like, you know, maybe the the odd guy in the barracks told him was true, and then he just sort of ran with, but... The idea there is that states need to have a militia in order to be able to deal with things like Shay's Rebellion. Yeah. I don't... I guess. But this is... I, that's really strange. This is... Yeah, this is... None pretty, of that's right. I think what... If I'm The right to bear arms was a pre-existing right under British yeah. common law. We've talked about that many times before. It was not new. It was not invented in the wake of Shay's Rebellion. I, I don't... I, I mean, 
I'm having to recall the entire records of the Constitutional Convention now. I don't recall Shays' Rebellion even being mentioned when yeah. the Second Amendment's discussed. Yeah, if I, I think I can sort of unpick the thread, very convoluted, twisted thread that he's, he's trying to, to run with here. The Gordian th- knot that he has yeah. tied. I think what he's getting at is this idea that since the Second Amendment makes a reference to the need to have a well-regulated militia, right? I assume he's considering that here to be the army, right? The United States Army. That is the United States Army. That's not really a state. No. And since the army obviously needs to have people with weapons that, I guess, preventing people from having weapons would prevent them from being a part of the army because if they can't have weapons, they can't be in the army. Therefore, the Second Amendment is exhaustively about making sure the army can have weapons. He writes, it says states cannot forbid the people from federal public service. It says nothing of the sort. It certainly doesn't say that. I, I think, you know, trying to meet him more than halfway here, what he means is it is about that or it well, has the anyway, effect. This is very that. wrong. I, I, I think, <laughs> you know, send us money. We'll be able to educate this guy. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's everything for today. <laughs> yeah, that's our that's our traditional ending, by yeah. the way. That, that wasn't out of nowhere. It's the you know, a dollar a day keeps this kind of guy off Twitter or off the internet yeah. or whatever. It's a, it's a um, long joke. Go to the, go to the yeah. maybe the last 20 minutes of our first episode if you want to get it. <laughs> we but. probably need to stop uh, doing some of these things every single time because the further we that's get fair. from the origin point. Anyway, that's fair. Mean, Certainly not without explain without just doing them in the original format, I guess. Anyway, dollar a day. All right, well, thank you, folks. For, yeah, <laughs> thank you, folks, for listening. Uh, as always, it's been a pleasure to present our podcast to you. Uh, please join us again next week. These are published weekly on Mondays. Last week was an exception because of Memorial Day holidays. They'll probably come out on Tuesdays, but these are going to go out weekly. Thanks for listening. We hope to have you back next week. Goodbye, everybody. All right. Good night, everyone.